now we're talking to a comic who wrote other comics, which could be a little bit dangerous to your career, and I think he knows that. It's Andy Kindler. Uh, he's was a regular on Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, regular guest on Late Show with David Letterman, uh, uh, contributed to The Daily Show, and it goes on and on. Andy, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, uh, I'm excited to be here, but I'm not nervous as I thought I would be because I really am pandemically. In a cocoon, and I haven't done much uh, venturing out. All right, well, here you are. <laughs> so, uh, but it's kind of interesting because you're actually very brave on stage. And so, you've been doing um, state of the industry uh, for quite a while, where you roast other comics, which then leads into the nice controversial topic of fascist comedians, uh, which you talk about. So, but let's start with the big names, and then we'll get to much, much smaller names. Um, so you're going after Dave Chappelle these days, um, but and I want to say I want to add I want to interject whatever you say when you do something like that. That when I started, I thought I was going after big top targets. I was angry that Leno took over the Tonight Show. So I've even joked in my act that back in the old days, you know, just bad comedy was bad, but now uh, horrible great comedy can uh, can kill people. You know, we'll give out misinformation on vaccines. So it's the stakes are much higher than when I started the speech in 1996, which was basically to do jokes like, uh, I hear Tim Allen laughs all the way in the bank, laughs all the way to the bank. It'd be better if on the way to the bank, Tim Allen made the people he was with laugh, stuff like that. Right, and so, and look, roasts are fun. Everybody likes roasts, right? But now all of a sudden, people aren't sure if they like roasts uh, because uh, yeah, you're right. I mean. It, Killing in comedy used to mean something else, uh, but right. but you know, so you go after Rogan and and but I feel like Rogan's so political that that's more kosher to go after him. But when you go after somebody like Dave Chappelle, uh, do the other comics and does Chappelle get pissed? And what's the reaction you get? I'm out of the you know I'm out of the loop. It used to be that I would because I was very very scared. You know, I even took Taekwondo to alleviate my fears. Didn't work, but I used to you know I used to make uh, there used to be a joke. We used I used to write the uh, this uh, uh, newsletter up in Montreal and uh, and also do the speech. And then we would all joke that I I was afraid to. I said I don't want to talk about Joe Rogan because he's going to kick my ass. This was back in the days when he was just a stand up. You know what I mean? So it was like I, I never thought. I always picked my targets by who I didn't think would actually physically beat me up. And uh, so Leno was easier to go after, but uh, then when the fascist thing happened recently, it was like uh, it's like an emergency now. So what would you consider a, a fascist comedian? Well, I use the, I mean I throw the word fascist around a lot, but it's like Rob Schneider, for example. Rob Schneider, I think I tweeted something like, you know, it doesn't uh, it's not our fault that he did horrible comedy and he. Was in those, you know, kind of writing Sandler's coattails. It's not our fault that he then, therefore, would encourage the Canadian trucker protest. That that's where it gets uh, unacceptable to me. It's just he's actually, of course, yeah, I think he blocked me very quickly. But it used to be, and also it's a, it's kind of a hard topic to talk about because it's really tied in with uh, uh, people who use free speech as a weapon. Because I first got involved with this stuff by defending people of faith, uh, defending Muslims. You know, my whole thing was I'm Jewish. I don't necessarily even re, uh, uh, observe that much, but 
I could tell early on with Marr and Sam Harris and all these people that they were they were they were exhibiting xenophobia disguised as criticism. Yeah, I like your line about Bill Maher being the only one uh, out there uh, bravely fighting against religion and science at the same time. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, He's got so, it all covered. Yeah, it looks look. There's two different uh, factors here, right? There's the big guys and there's the little guys. So the the big uh, the little guys, I think, have a lot more to do with money, uh, which we'll get to in a second. But for the big guys, it seems like they're like Chappelle and Maher and all those guys. Like, I think that they think they're being super brave just by being anti-trans or, or you know, anti-Muslim or whatever. When these are like the least brave things in the world, it's not like trans and Muslim people are running the work, running the country. So, do you yeah. think that's what it is? Like that they run out of material and they just think, well, if I attack these people, I'll seem like I'm George Carlin or something. I think it really. Unfortunately, comes from uh, their actual hatred of things. Like there's like with Bill Maher, there's xenophobia, and also that there's a lot of that that there's, and also that they think that they're Lenny Bruce because they keep using the free speech argument. And of course, it's beyond ridiculous to have to say that if you know you don't have the if the government isn't stopping you from speaking, your free speech rights are not really being affected. You don't have the right. You know, I used to make a joke like, if I was the president of ABC, would I have to put on the Nazi hour? Just because, you know, would that be a, a, a obligatory to me? You know, so it's like, uh, these guys are like hiding behind their rebels and people don't want to hear the truth. And that was what Bill Maher's whole thing was. People want to, what is the truth though? The truth that he was, even after 9-11 was, we did have to worry about these Muslims. Even now, Bill Maher hasn't said, after all this time, the number one problem is Christian nationalism. The number one problem has, even since 9-11 has been Christian nationalism. And you know, I still haven't recovered from George W. Bush Initially, it looks like he was going to be because he had certain things in his life, like he had been around Hispanic people, and so he was—I don't know—I don't even know—he had been around people, and so he felt he wanted immigration to be improved. He really did want to change immigration, but then he got involved with this Cheney, or he got involved with his pre-existing. And I've been reeling since then. I've been reeling since the second Iraq War, and then. You know, it's like you can't have time to catch your breath, and then it's Trump. But then it's also all of these comedians like Adam Carolla, Joe Rogan, who commands. They paid him. How much did they pay him? Hundred million. Hundred million dollars. And you know, what's the truth? I mean, there are nice executives. I don't really. I know that there are nice people who are in the executive position, but you can bet that these people either didn't know. Or didn't care that Rogan for years is a misogynist and uh, all of this, like uh, just the whole thing, like uh, who gets to use it? It's all these fake issues. The new one, of course, is trans, the trans issue. So to update to right now, uh, the idea that 
when you see Bill Maher saying something like, hey, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. I'm glad my, you know, he's buying into that. We should have just been, I don't even engage with it anymore. I mean, I do engage with it, but it's all, it's fascist. It's like othering a group of people. 30 years ago, it would have been homos, you know, people being gay would have been, you know, they would, these were the same comedians if they were, you know, you can even watch, I watch a lot of like Johnny Carson's from the 70s and 80s, and there's a lot of uh, anti gay stuff that comics I don't even think realized they were doing. But I'm talking about uh, planned, uh, planned hate and anger. And I think it's so hard. It's, it's like they really want to make, they are making money. They think they're big. They think that they're telling the truth and uh, it's hard and they like the power, I think. Yeah, which leads us to the little guys because uh, those guys don't have as much money. And so they're willing to ride along on any grift, which brings us to Jimmy Dore. So uh, Andy, um, did you know Jimmy Dore before? I've known Jimmy Dore for not as long as I've been doing comedy, but but for a long time. I, I am going to come out right now and just tell you that I'm 65 years old. And uh, I've been saying it for a long time how old I am. It hasn't helped me career-wise. And I know Jimmy's not my age, but I've known him probably since the uh, early 90s, early 90s. Yeah, and so uh, he certainly seems to have taken a turn for the right. I certainly think he did. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? It's Well, my thoughts are this. It's like he used to be a nice guy. I used to think he was a nice guy. Okay, I used to think he was a nice guy. And then I just remember right before doing this that I, there were these uh, comics who were making fun of me who are like, quote, new atheists. And they were making fun of me because I was defending people of faith and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I, I, I had contacted Jimmy Dore about it because he was kind of liking their comments and everything. And then he kind of emailed me back going, yeah, well, you know, I'm just giving it to everybody. And give it, then he then he emailed me later to say he kind of some he was going through these changes where it was happening to him too that people were targeting him, but that all of a sudden went into this black hole of a guy who never knew much about politics. You could tell if someone's a political comedian. You may not even like if they're a political comedian, but he was doing really Johnny Carson style stuff. And I just remember one time t- turning on this thing and. I, I I don't watch everything, but all of a sudden I I see him talking about Seth the Seth Rich stuff, and uh, the way his attitude was like, yeah, the government says this. It's like this snarky Dennis Millery uh, stand-up comic cover for him just repeating anything that he thinks people want to hear, anything, any manipulation of any topic. So the the Democrats aren't good, the Republicans aren't good, AOC wasn't good, and it's really gotten to the point where he's making a lot of money from it, and he's really stirring a lot of hate. So I hope he stops, I just would like him to retire. Um, My theory is he's, it's a really controversial one, that he's doing it for the money. Oh Um, yeah, he is. Oh, I think you're, you are, Totally right. Uh, I don't think he has necessarily any convictions except being angry when someone is uh, stop moving around, Eddie. Except being angry when someone is when he threatening his thing, which his thing now is. I can't believe how much money I'm making on this shtick that I know nothing about. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you're capable of being disappointed anymore, <laughs> but given the state of humanity overall. Uh, but uh, were you disappointed when you saw that 
that shift in Jimmy? Uh, well, first I was, you know, it also takes it takes time. First, it's like you hear a couple of things, and then, uh, and also, if you spawn hate mongering fans, at some point you have to ask yourself why why do why do so many hateful people support me? I think he's uh, I am really more than disappointed in him. I think. I wouldn't have had to talk out about him in the 90s when I thought he was kind of a nice guy. I didn't like his comedy, but he was a guy who always had a lot of uh, what's the ambition? Ambition consumed yeah, by well, it. Your take is exactly well, right because there's nothing. If I was you, if you were my friend for your whole life, I would know if you were political. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, he's my close friend my whole life, but he's not a political guy. You know what I mean? He's a political guy, just like Johnny Carson was a political guy, which he wasn't. Letterman was more like it, but not. But he, but Jimmy could not have been more milk toast, more middle of the road, crowd pleasy, and now he's taking crowd pleasing to a new level. Yeah, he's actually kind of become a professional crowd pleaser. The right wing likes these videos, so I do these videos. And uh, but I'll end on this. Uh, to be fair, uh, Jimmy uh, has said many, many times, and had said it earlier too, that uh, that he would sell out for money. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's not like he, he has jo- he has he has joked about that, or has he said it to friends? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, no. He he joked on air when he was with us. Uh, you know, when I I turned down a, a a big contract at MSNBC, for example, and he's like, "You're crazy, man. I, I would sell out in a second, and for that kind of money, I I, I would say whatever people want." And I thought he was just joking, and it turns out maybe not. The last thing I got from him when I went after him on Twitter, which is my only place I can go after people, he said this sentence, this is the last one, crazy like a direct message before I unfollowed him. It's like, you're getting ratioed, you're getting, ra- I swear I still don't know what that word means. I've looked it up many times, you're getting ratioed, see in the green room. Now what does see in the green room mean? Like he's in on the joke and I'm supposed to be on the joke. Like he was like saying, he had more was like, this is great. Or this, you know, I was trying to cover up, this is great. You're getting ratioed though, whatever that means. And uh, just like, that's sad. Yeah, yeah, no, that's an interesting line. Uh, it does seem to be like winking and nodding at, but none of us really mean what we say, do we? And right, that's uh, what he was doing. It's like Trump, I don't want to compare him to Trump, but what can you do? When Trump said, I shared a green room, who's he sharing a green room with? Putin. Nobody, I don't still don't understand. He brag about your connections with Putin. You shouldn't be <laughs> on any level. He's dropping the wrong name. He's dropping a Hitler level name. <laughs> and I don't, I, you know, no, no offense to Hitler. No, I used to go, Trump's lot like Hitler, except at least Hitler actually served. He actually went to a war. All right, I'll leave it right there. Andy <laughs> <Kittler>. <laughs> it was so good talking to you, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on, Andy. We Thank appreciate you. it. Take care. All right, we got a great guest for you guys now. Reza Aslan, he's the winner of a James Joyce Award, which is huge. He's the author of three internationally best-selling books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. There's a huge controversy around his CNN show, 
believer. He's got a podcast, Metaphysical Milkshake. And now a new book, An American Martyr in Persia, The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville. Reza, welcome back, brother. Thank you, it's great to be back on the show. All right, so tell me about our old friend Baskerville. <laughs> Howard Baskerville was a 22-year-old Christian missionary from North Platte, Nebraska, who in 1907 went to Iran, it was called Persia back then, in order to teach English and preach the gospel. And he showed up in the midst of the Middle East's first democratic revolution, the revolution that history will come to know as the Persian Constitutional Revolution. And this kid, it took a while, it took about a year and a half for him to kind of be activated, but Ultimately, he gave up his missionary post, he gave up his teaching job. He abandoned his American citizenship and he joined that revolution and fought alongside Persians against the villainous tyrannical Shah for Persian democracy at the time. And he ended up dying this kind of incredible heroic death that made him a martyr and a real sort of inspiration for the revolutionaries who ended up actually uh, defeating that Shah, sending him into exile and creating for a very, very brief while uh, the Middle East's first constitutional monarchy. Yeah, and so uh, first of all, um, now you, as my daughter says, you spoil the beans. Now I know he died. Uh, he goes in 1907, I thought maybe he's still hanging around uh, figuring things out. <laughs> you know, unfortunately the, the subtitle kind of gives it away. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of. Like when you put tragic death in the title of the book, it's just kind of a dead giveaway, if you will. Um, but okay, so first of all, uh, why did he have to renounce his American citizenship? Well, at the time, the US government was aggressively neutral in the Persian Constitutional Revolution. Uh, in fact, the State Department had sent a memo to the missionaries in Persia explicitly warning them that they can have nothing to do with this conflict at all, that it's not their business, that the US government cannot support a revolution that is bound to fail, which is what the State Department said. And that more importantly, that there has never been in history a successful example of a democracy in a Muslim majority state. In fact, the exact line was, quote, Islam implies autocracy. And so therefore, no American can have anything to do with this. And so when this one American <laughs> actually did begin to fight alongside the revolutionaries, took actually a command position in this revolution, not only was he warned to stop, but he was actually threatened with treason. That was the, the argument that the American government made, that you are going against US interests, therefore, we we uh, we sort of consider what you're doing to be an act of treason. And Baskerville, in a very dramatic moment on the battlefield, uh, handed over his passport and essentially said, okay, well, then I guess I'm not American anymore because what it means to me to be an American is to fight for the basic rights of other people. You know, you may think that democracy is just a Christian thing, but I don't think so. Um, and he did, he handed over his passport and, and essentially uh, gave up his American citizenship and his privilege as an American in order to fight this fight. 
So the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's why history is interesting. I mean, just yesterday on, on the Young Turks, uh, Dennis Prager was a guest and uh, he claimed that the Palestinians cannot govern themselves because <laughs> they because they would choose someone he doesn't want them to choose. Exactly. And how dare they? That's the problem uh, of a democracy, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and if we're being honest, Barack Obama during the Egyptian revolution for a long time stayed neutral. And and I remember I was on MSNBC and he gave a speech about how he uh, the Egyptian revolution was inspiring and that Hosni Mubarak was a great ally of ours. Yeah, like, and they're not going anywhere. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, wait, those are two contradictory statements. So we've been at this quite a while, uh, America, in 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 uh, in not believing that perhaps. Uh, Muslim countries can govern themselves. You know, I'm really, I'm really glad that you're you're bringing this up because, to me, the biggest sort of takeaway, the lesson to be learned from from Baskerville's incredible life, a life that has been completely lost to most Americans. I mean, this 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 young kid, for generations, was a hero and a martyr in Iran. His grave is still there in Tabriz. There's a giant golden bust of him in a museum next to a big painting of him. He is. You know, really, until the 1979 revolution, he was considered this the Iran's Lafayette is how he was often referred to. You know, the foreigner who fought in our revolution. But in America, this, this kid is absolutely unknown. This is the first biography ever written about him, and I think part of the reason has to do precisely with kind of what you are saying. You know, and I think honestly, like the lesson for me about Baskerville today is that you know the. We as Americans especially <laughs> have a responsibility and an obligation um, to actually make sure that the freedoms that we take for granted here, freedoms that are absolutely under attack in the United States, are freedoms that are universal. You know, we, we talk a great talk in America, right? Uh, but it's rare to actually walk the walk. And this is a kid who 116 years ago not only walked the walk, but paid for it with his life. Yeah, you know, we've done thousands of stories on the Young Turks, but one of the ones that always stayed with me was when Joe Scarborough, now maybe a decade ago, I don't remember now, but said about Muslims in the Middle East. He said, they hate us because they hate us. They hate us because they hate us. They hate us because they hate us. He said it three times, okay? But Reza, they didn't hate Baskerville, right? And he was an American. Isn't that interesting? They have a golden bust of an American. In in Iran, so maybe they don't hate us just because they hate us. No, and 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 on that point, I think the one of the reasons why I do want to make sure that Americans remember this kid, that you know this heroic kid, is because I really do think that he can be a kind of bridge, you know, especially now. Look at the governments of Iran and the United States. There's there's no way that they're going to get along. There's no there's no connection there. There's just too much animosity. But people to people, you know this. The Iranian people and the American people have so much in common with each other. And I think that there's an enormous amount of frustration and disappointment in Iran, not just at American foreign policy and the lack of support that America gives to Iranian civil or civil rights organizations, but also that Americans themselves seem to just not really care, you know, what's happening in Iran. They have this kind of cartoonish impression. Of Iran that Iranians don't share about America, by the way, 
And maybe in a way, you know, it might be too much to ask, but you know, a kid like Howard Baskerville in both countries can act as a, a model for a new kind of relationship, a, a relationship based on not mutual animosity, but mutual respect. So Reza, let, let me float a theory by you. So I think that the Iranians have a more complicated view of Americans and understand that we vary and we're nuanced and we're different, right? Because they've seen American shows and movies and there's rich characters in there that disagree, that have different points of view and are real human beings. Whereas our media portrays only one vision of Iran. And it is not complicated, it is not nuanced, it is not real, it's just the boogeyman. Um, what do you think about my theory? I think that's right. I would absolutely add one more thing about it. I think that the vast majority of Iranians do not support their government and they know that their government doesn't speak for them. So when their government does these horrible things, whether domestically or, or on the global stage, the Iranian people understand the enormous, the vacuum, the distance between their hopes, their desires and their government. They don't think their government represents them. But I think Americans, because we think we live in a democracy and that our government represents us and it speaks for us. And even when we don't agree with the government, it's still our government, it's still you know our leaders. And so we just assume that in Iran, the people feel the same way about their government, that the government represents the people. Whereas Iranians would never think that the US government represents the US people. Like it doesn't occur to them, right? They look at Trump or they look at Bush or whatever and they're like, these idiots <laughs> clearly don't speak for the, for the American people in the same way that our idiots don't speak for us. We need to sort of have that same mentality about the difference between the Iranian people and the Iranian government. Okay, one more theory, and I'm coming out with these on the spot, but I like them. <laughs> um, okay, so I think that the that American media and American political uh, actors presenting Iran as as the Iranian people as liking their uh, oppressive government it has an element of uh, bigotry in it, and and here's why, because. We don't present North Korea as loving Kim Jong-un. Mm. So we understand that there are dictators in the world and that they oppress their own people. So we never present Kim Jong-un that way. We might present him in other ways, although Trump said he, he loves him. But, <laughs> but normally we don't, You know, everybody else says Kim Jong-un is terrible, but he obviously does not represent the North Koreans. He oppresses the North Koreans. But when it comes to Iran, oh no, the Muslims love being oppressed by an autocratic Dictator, etc. Yeah, in fact, I'll take it one step further. Rarely do you hear politicians calling about a military invasion of Korea. Let's just bomb, you know, all of Korea. Let's just kill, you know, millions of people, you know, in order to deal with the problems that we have with the government. That is standard talking points on the left and, frankly, on the right. I'm on the right and, frankly, on the left is what I meant to say. About Iran, let's just bomb them. Let's just kill millions of people, and that's the way that we can change the regime. And you're right. I mean, there there is an element of racism involved in a lot of that rhetoric. Yeah. Look, I had planned to ask you all about the history of the Shahs and the revolution that you wrote about and what happened after the revolution, but all of a sudden we're out of time. But there is good news for the audience. You get the book, and the book has a whole story. 
Okay, and it's it's a, yeah, it's a great book, and I'm I'm really proud of it. Uh, it's the best book I I think I've ever written, and uh, this is a kid that needs to be known. His story has to be told, and it's told in an American martyr in Persia, the epic life and tragic death of Howard Baskerville. Reza, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.